Hola, muchachos. Welcome back to the Shit Musicians Say Podcast, Episode 8. In a couple hours, I will be getting on a plane to Mexico, and by the time this hits your ears, I will be uh, either choking someone, getting choked, on a surfboard, or drunk. So, you pick. It's a uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu surf camp, so... Yeah. I could not line up a guest today, so you got me. And since the uh, kind of the impetus behind this was to help me have some conversations to work on my book and whatnot, uh, I thought I would do a little reading for you today. Got you a little short episode. God knows you wouldn't want to uh, listen to me for two hours, so we'll keep it short today. Anyhow, the uh, music you heard on the intro was a uh, old band of mine, which is the subject of this book. Um, that was an instrumental called Moment of Clarity. I'll play a little more of it at the end and uh, see what you think. Anyways, we'll uh, go ahead and kick it off here with the prologue of my yet as of unnamed book and uh, unedited what so you get what you get no edits here and here we go prologue the majority of this book is made up of blogs I posted during the tenure of the band Signal of which I was the guitarist never heard of us I'm not surprised it's kind of the whole point we wrote songs recorded those songs made and sold CDs with those songs on them got noticed, toured extensively, opened shows for national acts over 50 times, got played on the radio, had multiple endorsements, got signed, got dropped, got financially backed, spent 50000 recording our national debut, and promptly broke out, broke up without releasing that debut due to personal issues. A vast understatement. The public blogs that were regularly posted throughout this time weren't the only ones written. The public blogs could be, couldn't be blunt and honest in respect to the members. The private writings were. So will be the running commentary. In the spirit of honesty, I'll pull no punches. What you'll read is my account, my account of what happened. The original blogs will be presented in italics as to set them apart from the current text and will remain as originally written, expect, except for spelling corrections to keep all the original tone and intent intact. Introduction. For every made-it-big fame and fortune story, there are a million unfulfilled almost-made-it stories. With every inspirational quote from the former category, a myriad of people from the latter are set upon their personal path to follow their dreams and try to achieve the same heights. The law of averages dictate that the majority of those that set upon this path are destined to fail. Failure defined by me is not achieving what you set out to achieve. So I'm not a branding anyone other than myself a failure, and even then I'm evolving the term rather evolving the perception of failure. The thing that the success story and failure have in common is that they begin at the same point, a dream. The two paths are indistinguishable mid-swim, the deviation being that some people are in the right place at the right time, which can make all the difference. Others simply give up. The pressure is just too much. Family members tell you to let go of childish things. Other situ situations arise forcing responsibility. 
a good job comes along that doesn't allow for such folly? There are many variables. In the grand scheme, these things denote failure, the foreclosure of a dream. Depending on how you look at it, such may not be the case. I'm not an optimistic person by any stretch of the imagination, but having been forced into a situation of having to give up on my dreams, I was forced out of my pessimistic viewpoints as to not dive off the metaphoric cliff into severe depression. I had to focus on things I had accomplished. I had fulfilled some of my dreams, but as with any dream, as you reach certain levels, you alter the dream and move the expectations further out. If there's one truth to this life, it's that expectation is the foundation of heartbreak. This causes us to forget what we've accomplished and focus only on the unattained goals. The argument can be made that some people are just more motivated than others, and these are the people that make it. Problem is, you only seem to hear the stories of the motivated people that attain their dreams. You never seem to hear the tale of those driven people who don't. Nobody wants to hear those stories. They take the wind out of all those inspirational quotes. To know that that person that failed tried just as hard as the guy who wrote the quote isn't as inspiring. Generally, failure is nothing more than someone else's perception of events transpired. It doesn't have to become a subjective flaw to find oneself. Popular tales of failure may be less common, but that doesn't mean they're any less inspirational or interesting. Some, some people reach the stars, some people shoot for the stars and only hit the fence post. Hitting the fence post is a hell of a lot better than aiming for the fence post and hitting the ground. I played my hand, I gave it my best, I lived some of my dreams, I aimed for the stars. Chapter 1. Me. I suppose since I'm the author, I should take the liberty of telling a bit about myself just to get the ball rolling. The first few things that occurred to me when starting these blogs were self-indulgent, autobiographical ramblings. So without further ado... Blog post dated February 14th, 2006. Earliest memories of music. I include this because of the formative possibilities that may lie therein, as if they won't be obvious to anyone who knows me even slightly. I try to conjure my first memory of music and come to the realization that I have very few memories of being very young. My earliest memory of anything would be being thrown across a room either out of anger or to be removed from harm as I had just potentially set the house on fire. I have no idea what age this was, but it was when grocery stores still put your groceries in those big brown paper sacks. Come to think of it, I had to be less than four because I know my sister wasn't around yet and I am four years older than her. Anyways, my mom and dad and I were living with my father's parents at the time. My memory of this is not that good. I can only recount it so well because I've had it told to me countless times and have yet to live it down so many years later. We had just returned from the store and my parents were in the kitchen unloading the bags. I had, for whatever reason, made a habit of playing with the empty bags, putting one over my head on this occasion while a candle was burning in the living room. You can put two and two together to figure out what happened next, but when all was said and done and the aforementioned throw across the room, I had burned up the living room carpet, which I remember being covered with a rug for the longest time, which is bullshit for the amount of grief I'd had to put up with over the years they should have at least replaced the carpet. Believe me, I could venture a guess that my grandmother may have left it that way to make sure I carried the burden to a destination of her liking. It wasn't like they didn't have the money to replace it. She probably just wanted me to have a constant reminder what I had done for at least as long as we had lived there. Then again, she might have just been waiting till I moved out so I wouldn't fuck the carpet up again. I have one other memory earlier than this, a very disturbing memory that I can remember vividly. vividly the dialogue. I remember the house. I look at it any time I go by it. 
it burned a few years back and I was glad. I never I remember I never remembered the other person and don't know what may have happened to them except to hope that they, maybe they went the way of the house. No need to explore that any deeper. Kind of hard to go back to the music after that last little bit, eh? Well, we go anyways. I remember my dad listening to the Beatles, the Dewey Brothers, and old Motown while he built flutes in our basement during the times he was laid off from the railroad. I remember finding a Kiss Destroyer album in a house that my parents were renting to some complete slobs and being completely enamored by the visual, but not being able to keep it and connect with the sight with the sound because of what the record might be transporting. Roaches. I remember my slightly older, older neighbor having a Men at Work album and falling in love with the sound of the band and questioning him as to why, when they had released a new album, that my favorite from the last weren't on this one. I remember a kid on the school bus blasting Devo from the very back every day for a year. I remember another kid, one who became a good friend and remains one to this day, blasting a sound on the school bus that turned me inside out. I couldn't wait to find out what that sound was, who the fuck was this band. So much so that me, being the complete, complete introvert, at the age of eight, I walked up to the kid and asked, who is that? It was Motley Crue. Shout at the Devil had just come out, and up until then I was still listening to Men at Work. I wasn't doing very good at school, as usual, and my parents had made me a deal. If my grades improved from the previous period, I could pick three tapes from the record store. I busted my fucking ass that period and pulled my grades up considerably. I don't think I even cared, and I surely don't remember what the other two tapes were, but you, best your, you bet your ass the first one was that Motley tape. And a most funny thing happened. That tape scared the living shit out of me. Anyone who is familiar with the opening track knows exactly what the fuck I mean. In the beginning, holy shit. I had always been one to go to church every Sunday with my grandma and grandpa. Not the one that I damn near burnt their house down. The same grandparents would send me to the Bible camp, send me to Bible camp in the summer. I know, hard to believe, but it is the truth. So when I say in the, say the beginning of that tape scared the shit out of me, I mean it. I can still feel remnants of terror to this day, which made me more pliable when my grandmother took a special interest in trying to deprogram me from, my, from the clutches of these evil bands. I can't complain too much. She bought me the music that she thought was safe because I told her it was and she believed me. Anything to turn me against what I was currently listening to, and in a total act of irony, she brought the most uncharacteristic of things that she could have bought. A five-foot Motley Crue poster with a giant fucking pentagram on top. I must have wanted it real bad, and since I am her only grandson, I got it. I still have it to this day. Grandma never did dissuade me from my musical choices, try as she might, neither did anyone else for that matter. I've had the fortunate chance of being friends with quite a few very open-minded people who helped mold my tastes into what they are today. I listen to just about anything. If it's a good song or a good composition, I don't care what genre it is. Enough for today. Blog post dated February 10th, 2006. Stop me if you've heard this one. I got a guitar for my 13th birthday. Yeah, I know. How cliche. But I thought I'd start at the relative beginning and this is it. My parents got me a guitar because I'd been getting in so much trouble that they thought it would keep me off the streets, my mother's exact words, and deter me from my chosen vocation at the time of petty crime. The irony of this is that I would go on to be involved with more derelicts and dysfunctional degenerates because of the music than I ever might have with my other hobby. I started the summer after seventh grade with a bald head and a bad fucking attitude. 
My father knew how much I loved my long hair, and that is why he met me at the bus stop one day after school, after receiving my report card, telling me, get in the truck. I knew what this was all about, as if my grades weren't bad enough. I don't even think I passed the seventh grade. They just wanted to get rid of me. I'd been out of school for suspension more than I had been in school that year due to such tomfoolery as telling a teacher to fuck off, general disobedience, and oh yeah, getting in a fight with my best friend, who I was now trying to hurry into the truck as to maybe distract my father from going to the barbershop, telling my friend, hey, we'll give you a ride, when I was told under no uncertain terms, we aren't going home. At least I tried. I remember the surreal experience of getting my head shaved vividly because I thought maybe my dad was trying to scare me as he had many times before, promising, promising me if I fucked up again I was going to be bald. But when we walked into the barber shop, the kind with that red, white, and blue twisty thing outside, and he told the barber, shave it all, I knew he meant business. I stared into the mirror, feeling my head for what seemed like an eternity when we returned home, thinking, this has got to be a dream. My sister, who was nine at the time, looked at me in horror, asking what happened to my head. I was 13 and bone skinny. I must have looked like a reject from a concentration camp to her. As a result of the haircut, I received a hat, funny but true, and the aforementioned guitar for my birthday that year. Hey, I wasn't going outside with that fucking haircut. I might as well learn to play, or at least torture this instrument. Which brings us to point A. I'm 13, and the midst of the hell that is puberty. I look like a social fucking outcast, so no girl would want to touch me, which is all a 13-year-old boy wants at that point. So I had no choice but to jump in with both feet into what caused me so much pleasure and pain over the last however many years. Music. Blog post. Dated February 13th, 2006. Part 2. After reading back on the previous story, I realized the head-shaving part came off as kind of funny, and I can see the humor, of course, but it was anything but amusing at the time. I received my share of ass-beatings as a kid, and I would have preferred a thousand ass-beatings to the humiliation of something like that. Not to sound like a whiny pussy, but to do that to a kid at that time in their life, when they're already searching for who they are, it just really sucked. Enough said. Before I got my first gar guitar <clears throat> or learned to play, I was in what my friend and I thought was a band. I'm going to do this as chronologically as I can, so I have to include this. He played drums, and my other friend played guitar, which prompted me to beg my parents for one. My guitar-playing friend Jeff was not included in this first band, as he, was, he and my drummer friend Dave did not get along. Jeff thought Dave was an imbecile, and he was right, and Dave didn't think anything about Jeff at all. So even though I was considerably less skilled than Jeff at guitar, which is to say not at all, I was the de facto guitar player in what was known as, are you ready? Drum roll for one of the worst band names ever. Magnum. This was long before the extra large Trojan brand condoms came out, but still funny in retrospect. Let it be known that I had nothing to do with this terrible band name. In all actuality, there was another guitar player in the band who was even less skilled than I, but because his brother was a real guitarist, he was it, and he was responsible for the name. I wasn't even included in the band initially, which was made very apparent to me after I voiced my opinion of how awful I thought the name was, and was told, who said you were even in the band? But after learning a few basic riffs that even a monkey could play, but the other player, guitar player couldn't, I was included by default. This band practices included seeing exactly how much fucking noise we could make before we were begged by Dave's parents to stop. 
They were surprisingly very supportive and encouraged us until, of course, they could not absolutely stand it anymore. One of my coolest stage props to date unintentionally happened at this point in my career. We were in Dave's backyard with the fire hazard that I used as an amp at the time. I was doing what I thought was rocking atop the picnic table and jumped off, not realizing the instrument cable was too short, so the amp came with me. Except for the power cord that was crudely taped together, which resulted in a fiery shower of sparks. Very cool. We were so enamored with our kiss-like pyro that we never stopped to think that we might have been fucking electrocuted. Such was the retardation of me and my friends at this age. So I mentioned that the reason I was given the guitar in the first place was to divert my career as a petty criminal. Well, a lot of good that did. The very same guys that I was getting in trouble with were the ones that ended up being in my first band which basically gave us something to do in the daylight hours until it got dark enough to break into cars. It was a good idea on the surface. I give my parents that. It did ultimately get me to start making new friends when I thought I had outgrew my old bandmates musically, which in turn introduced me to the type of sick fucking individuals who would choose a vacation that would provide such a shitty paycheck in return for the benefits of complete and utter debauchery on every level. There you have it. The prologue, the intro, and chapter one to my book. Which may or may not be finished this millennium sometime. Anyways, if you think I should do that again and you liked it, drop me a line at shitmusicianssaypodcast at yahoo.com. That's a mouthful. Anyways, that's it for this week. Nice short episode for you. Nice relief after all the long episodes. I'm going to take you out on a little uh, advanced beauty behind the rack. This uh, next song is uh, instrumentally all there. I'm chomping at the bit to uh, get the vocals laid down so people can hear this one. This is one of my favorite tracks. It was actually written by my guest from episode 7, Gavin McGuire. He talked about how he didn't write a lot of music for songs, well, he wrote the music for this one, and uh, everybody else enhanced upon it and whatnot, and I'm pretty happy with this one, so we'll pay, play a little bit of it, just so you can get the vibe of it, uh, I won't play it all for you, because it's, uh, there's no words, and you know how that goes, so, this is Superfluous You by Beauty Behind the Wreck, see you next time. Mm-hmm. 